the value of having it mobile is to be flexible within your life so that if you have to change your job or you have to go, you know, be with your parents because they're getting old or whatever the case may be, you can move it, let's say, within a few years. But what I'm proposing is something um, that's not readily movable within a few hours or a few days. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 49, my interview with Vina Lestato. After her tiny home survived the Ojai wildfires in 2017, Vina has shifted her focus to designing fire-resistant tiny homes. Vina is both a tiny house dweller and a professional designer. Her designs incorporate lots of light and open space with a focus on how the space is used by the inhabitants. I really enjoyed my chat with Vina, and I think you will too. The Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast is sponsored this week by the Tiny House Design Build Certificate at Yestermorrow in Waitsfield, Vermont. The Tiny House Design Build Certificate is for everyone from professionals entering the tiny house market to DIYers who want to design and build their own home. This is the most comprehensive tiny house course available. The curriculum covers all the must-knows for the tiny house design build and offers students hands-on experience designing, drafting, and building a tiny house on wheels for a real client. To learn more, visit yestermorrow.org tiny and use the coupon code podcast to waive the $25 application fee. Again, that's yestermorrow. Y-E-S-T-E-R-M-O-R-R-O-W dot org slash tiny and use the coupon code podcast to save $25. Thank you so much to Yestermorrow for sponsoring our show. All right, I am here with Vina Lestado. Vina is the founder of Soul House Design, a boutique firm with a focus on sustainable design and building in Ojai, California. After receiving an architecture degree and more than 20 years experience with high-end corporate clients, Vina decided to focus her career on smaller scale projects that could make a positive difference. Staying true to her values, Vina lives full-time in her tiny house, which she designed and built with the help of friends. Vina's home has been featured in media publications, books, and television. Vina is also a proud recipient of FWN Global 100 Most Influential Women and has been a featured speaker at Yale University on social entrepreneurship. Vina Lestato, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ethan. Pleasure to be here. Thanks. And I feel like you're one of those tiny house people that I knew online for years and years before we finally met at the tiny house jamboree in in Texas, I think in 2017, right? Correct. And it was so nice to actually attach the name to the face. I've seen your face many different places, obviously, but to actually get to talk to you and meet you was really nice. Tell me about your like what you brought to Tiny House Design, because I'm assuming that the first tiny house that you designed was your own. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this was always a personal project uh, for me to... Um, carry out my values and sustainability and affordability. And it wasn't necessarily a business endeavor at all. Um, It was just for myself to build and design something that um, matched my values and, you know, saving the planet and proving to myself that I can 
build something that is well within my means without getting into debt and having a large mortgage. So um, contrary to most people's thoughts, it's my tiny house was not at all a business endeavor. I had um, my company Soul House Design for about three or four years before I actually built my tiny house. So um, yeah, it's interesting that most people think most of my uh, business is based on tiny houses, and it's actually only like 5%. So that's interesting. And and your tiny house was one of the first houses that I remember seeing that put the entry on the long end of the house rather than the, the gable end. So it you know, just lends itself to opening opening up wide. And I think you have like a beautiful deck that's connected to that. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because, as you know, we all take inspiration from other people. And I, of course, it would be nice to take credit for that idea. But in reality, it was Dee Williams who, um, who I took inspiration from because I did take her um, workshop what, six, seven years ago, right before um, Tumbleweed changed. And she had a design called, I think it was the Peapod. And she had, um, or maybe it was Tammy's, Tammy's um, tiny house also. They had the side entry, but they didn't really capitalize on you know, the deck being adjacent to the side and having big double French doors. Um, But that thought of having it as a side entry was something that I first saw in Dee's design. Yeah, and that's such a nice design element, especially when you're somewhere where it's temperate climate and you can make use of that space all year round. It just expands your living space in a nice way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And just opening it up as much as possible with um, all glass French doors and putting the deck the the long direction so that you have maximum square footage and also swinging the door out so you're not using the interior space for the swing of the doors really make a difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you actually have more than one tiny house on your property, correct? That's correct. Um, uh, Just a few clarifications there. It is not my property. I I rent it and it's located in Ojai. Um, I would love to own property in Ojai, but it's uh, very, very expensive um, in my lovely little town just north of Los Angeles. But the real estate prices are quite... um, exorbitant (laughs) to say the least. So I rent the property from a landowner and I had my office, my tiny office there more than a year ago, just my tiny office, um, which is different from my tiny house. And about a year ago, um, the landowner decided that it would be fine to also put my tiny house there alongside my tiny office. So it's the first time that it's been brought together on one property. And it's always been a vision of mine to have a cluster of small units adjacent to each other to form kind of a community or, um, you know, a series of spaces that's joined by a courtyard for outdoor living space. And that, that's, that's what I've accomplished, I feel, in 
the property that I I'm located now. I've seen some photos of it and and I encourage our listeners to to check out venustinyhouse.com to see photos of of Vina's setup. It's just very it's cozy and spacious at the same time and just there's so much light. <laughs> yeah, um light is a really really important piece of my designs. Um I think it's the way you perceive space and the way that um, you actually feel energetic within the space is to have as much light as possible. And so having a courtyard at the central point as an organizing piece really allows as much natural light to come in in all sides of, of the structure. So there's never a dark room if you're um, able to put windows and openings and doors um, to the exterior to feel much more expansive in a very limited amount of space. Ojai, in my mind, I think of it because I think wildfires. And I know that that you've been kind of at the epicenter of several now. And I'm curious how that has kind of affected your, has that affected the design work that you do? And, and has that kind of brought you in new directions? Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, I'm not sure if most people realize that Ojai was, at the time, uh, in December 2017, it was the largest fire ever recorded in the history of California. And since last year, it's been superseded by other fires in California. But um, the whole town of Ojai, as well as um, Ventura County, was devastated by the whole um, the whole fire raging throughout the county. And so a lot of people really had to look closely on how that is to be addressed in our future for building and zoning. And it's something we cannot ignore anymore, you know, climate change and all the other natural disasters that happen as a result of it. Um, because after the fires in Montecito, which is just north of Ojai, mudslides came. And that was another devastation that happened just north of us. And so we had gone through it for at least two months, actually much longer um, because there's so many effects of people who lost their home with having to deal with insurance and rebuilding, you know, even up to now, one year later. So I feel that we really need to address fire resistance and um, just the effects of climate change and the way that we design our structures. Um, so I'm looking into doing a prototype for a tiny house that addresses fire resistance in the building materials. Um, so that's something I can talk about a little bit further, but I do feel that fire resistance and other types of um, measures for building needs to be carefully addressed now that that is a new reality that just won't go away. And our, it's our new normal. Given the way the West is looking in light of climate change and just the conditions, it seems that fire is going to be something that we all have to start thinking about. So I'm, I'm curious, what does, what does a fire resistant design look like for a tiny house? And are there, are there particular benefits in a time of being tiny when you're trying to do that kind of design work? Um, 
there are two trains of thought, it seems, for fire resistance and um, building design. One strong, um, you know, contingent of that are like earthen building, like adobe and cob and rammed earth, um, so that it's a natural material that's really um, resistant to heat and fire and it has very thick walls. Um, there's a lot of examples here in, in my area in Ojai and uh, there's a permaculture uh, uh, location just north of me that focuses only on permaculture building with cob and adobe. Um, it's not easily permitted at this point, and there, I, I believe there's some issues regarding earthquake stability, seismic zoning for that, um, although that has been addressed. But for tiny houses on wheels and things that need to be mobile, that's really difficult because of the weight and the width of the walls. You know, they're typically at the minimum eight to 12 inches or more. So that's a lot of square footage that you're taking up just because, just for the walls. So there are other measures that uh, you can use such as um, metal siding, for instance, which is not necessarily the best for thermal bridging within the walls. Um, other, other types is cement board paneling, um, which looks like wood lap siding. Um, I, I usually specify the siding, the cement board without wood grain, so it's not trying to look like another material, but um, it's one hour rated, fire rated um, material that's uh, applicable for high fire zones. Um, and it's very available. It's uh, typically by Hardy panel and it's lightweight um, and has a minimal thickness. So that's definitely one way to use uh, uh, an exterior finish that's fire resistant. Um, and another, really one of the most important is the roofing material. Asphalt composition roofs are not very good. <laughs> They're, they're flammable and it's easy to um, just have the embers go on the roof and go into the attic space and have the interior completely in flames within minutes. And the roofing is so important because fire really doesn't start, you know, from the sides. It starts from the top of uh, the roofs because typically there's a lot of winds in the air. Um, the Santa Ana winds are very typical here in Southern California. So the fire that was from the Thomas fire last year or in 2017 had, I don't know, like 60 mile per hour winds and the embers just flew across the freeway from Santa Paula to Ventura. And that's why it devastated you know, the county of Ventura immediately within a few minutes because the flying embers just spread like wildfire. And it's because of the roof materials. Um, mm. So the embers like land on the roof and then because the roof is made out of a flammable material, they just catch the roof on fire and then that's it. Exactly. And that's why you see in a neighborhood, there's only spots of houses that are burnt or maybe you know, like um, one every other. 
because there's no rhyme or reason, there's not a continuous spread. It's just very random spots. And that's because it's the roofing material that got inflamed. And uh, another consideration is the venting um, in the attic spaces, because a lot of the embers just fly into the venting. Um, and it just goes in the attic going into the interior of the house and I guess, again, gets inflamed very easily. So venting um, within the attic and also um, underfloor crawl space, like in the raised wood floor foundation, there's typically venting required for that. So you have to consider the ways that the fire gets inside the house um, and typically starting on the rooftop. So um, I always specify as much as possible um, standing sea metal roof for a tiny house that's really good because of the weight um, there's there is minimal weight involved and the durability it has the longest um, warranty available on the market for fire I mean for for roofing and of course the fire resistance on a metal roof versus asphalt composition um, the cost is sometimes, you know, difficult for a lot of the homeowners. But if you really consider all the threats of fire that we're going to have to address, I, it's, it's, I think it's very well worth the cost. Right. You'd rather spend a little extra on your roof than have to replace your whole house yeah. and all your possessions. So a number of the things that you mentioned earlier for fire resistance, like cob or rammed earth or adobe um those all sound very heavy and like probably wouldn't work on a trailer so do you feel like the the future for tiny houses in these fire prone areas is maybe not looking at trailers and and thinking more about building these earthen structures yeah there's a big movement actually in in ojai um, to have the earthen buildings. And it's just difficult because it's not, it's not scalable. You, you, you know, for people who want to DIY their homes and not have it be a tiny house on a trailer, I think it's fine and it's probably much more affordable because the material is almost free. Um, but for people, people to build every single one and have it be code compliant every single one is much more difficult to do. So that's why I've been trying to come up with a tiny house design prototype that um, accommodates the fire resistance and the mobility, even though it's considered a, a permanent structure because it's the, what I'm proposing is not on wheels. It's um, on a steel beam um, foundation that gets moved with a flatbed truck, but it is considered a permanent foundation and it's state permitted within California's um, housing and community development um, jurisdiction as opposed to the local building department. So um, I have all these different ideas to make it more easily permittable um, without having to change like local municipal codes, having it be an ADU. So is that considered skids, those steel beams, or is that called something else? Yeah, they're skids. So basically, um, 
it's a little bit like the idea of the shipping containers, although I'm not starting with a shipping container. The dimensions of a shipping container is what we would use because that's required for transportability within, you know, DMV regulations. But um, the foundation is a steel beam below the structure above, and it gets bolted onto concrete block units on the perimeter. Similar to a mobile home park where um, the, the foundation is a steel beam and it gets bolted onto the top of the concrete stem wall so that it can be removable after several years, although it's not on wheels. It's not on an axle. Is there any... Um value isn't the right word, but I'm not thinking of the right word. Is there any value in the idea of a house that could be moved, you know, if you know that a fire is coming? And I know that sometimes they come really, really fast, but in some situations, maybe if you know there's a fire coming, is there a value to having a house that you can just hitch up and move out of the way? There's definitely a value in that. Um, but the reality is, you know, my, my tiny house and my tiny office are on wheels and they are movable. But for my situation, I have put in a lot of work to um, put the conduit for my solar panels underground and the water um, is also um, underground and the panels are attached with a separate um, structure, not on my roof, but in an open space on the property. So, and I'd have to get a commercial uh, truck driver to schedule a move because I'm, I don't own my own truck and I only rely on professional drivers to move my units. So it's a whole undertaking. And when the fire occurred in Ojai, there was no way I was able to move it within a few days, let alone a few hours. So the value of having it mobile is to be flexible within your life so that if you have to change your job or you have to go you know, be with your parents because they're getting old or whatever the case may be, you can move it, let's say, within a few years. But what I'm proposing is something um, that's not readily movable within a few hours or a few days. Although I think many tiny houses on wheels can be readily movable, like Alexis and Christian, obviously. Um, they move all the time, but you have to design it within that frame of mind. So it sounds like in theory, it's a great idea, but in practice, we're not really set up for it. And and I echo the same thing, you know, where my tiny house is parked, though it's on land that I rent, you know, I've also, you know, put in uh, underground pipes to connect my gray water into the septic system that was there. And I've run water from the spring underground. And, you know, I have an aerial power cable from a small outbuilding so that I have power. So there are all these things that make it really difficult to just pick up and leave, not to mention that there's close to four feet of snow on the ground. So there's no way it's leaving until the spring. Exactly. Yeah, on my on the property I'm at, we had to almost grade a certain portion to create a drivable pathway to my location on the property because there were a lot of trees and there were 
lots of elevation changes along the trees. So the rigging of my tiny house was really super complicated. And we had to get bobcats and, you know, move a lot of boulders. Um, so even getting it out now, if I have to, it's, it's going to be a huge undertaking again. How do we transition here? It's recently, I, well, why don't you tell the story of, of your, your move or your partial move uh, to owning a cabin near Yosemite? Last year, I was looking into buying property so that I could put my tiny house on something that I owned instead of renting. And I tried doing that for about a year in Ojai with another woman who wanted to start a little tiny community with possibly a couple tiny houses that we would build for her and another one for me. Um, and we were going to split the cost in buying property because I knew that there was no way I could buy one on my own. And after many, many months of research and working with real estate agents in Ojai, it was still not possible for me because um, it just seemed what we could what we could find, my portion would still be such a small piece of land that it didn't make sense for the amount of money I would have to pay. And um, I, I started looking elsewhere in California and found this property near Yosemite. It's uh, in a little town called Oakhurst, just um, about 10 minutes away from the entrance to Yosemite National Park. And it's very affordable in standards of California real estate. Um, so just to give you an example, in Ojai, you would have a minute, you would need at least $500,000 at the very minimum to find something that was halfway decent, either just as property or with, you know, small tear down house even. Um, so ideally it would be like 750,000, close to a million. So that wasn't working for me at all. And this property in Yosemite um, is almost an acre. It's three quarter acre. Um, there's a cabin already built on the property. There is a creek that runs to the back of it, which was an amazing feature for me because for me, the property is more important than the structure. Um, and there's also large sequoia trees and other beautiful um, trees on the property with fruit trees. And uh, it was a flat level site, which was really desirable because many of the large properties you cannot build on for a variety of reasons, like the topography is really steep or there's no access to the actual property or you have to put a lot of utilities in if it's just purchasing land. Um, so this property is just over 200,000. So I was able to buy it on my own, which was a huge, a huge feat. Um, and it, it does have a cabin on it so that I'm able to have utilities already on the site without having to put in, you know, a huge development cost to put in water and electrical and, and uh, gas if I needed. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to figure out how it can work right now. Um, and as a matter of fact, I'm here this weekend in at the property because I wanted to go to the building and planning department in Madera County to 
talked to them about my idea about setting up several structures on here uh, with a tiny house uh, as a cons considered as a permanent based um, foundation as opposed to one on wheels. Nice. So what what is your vision for for the property? Are you looking to create, you know, a tiny house community of sorts? Yeah, it's much smaller in scale. Um, my ideal vision is to only have like three to five households on the property, whether or not it's a single person or a couple or maybe a couple with one child or a woman with one child, um, but something really simple and minimal where there's not too much complexity with the number of people who live here because I want it to be really um, open with a lot of open, you know, natural landscaping um, and have the structures be as small as possible um, to have minimal impact. And another vision I have is to have it employ permaculture principles so that we're stewarding the land as opposed to imposing the structures on top of the land. Because there's so much beauty here with the creek and there's a lot of waterfalls um, nearby that you can just walk to. And you don't even have to drive to Yosemite if you don't want to. There's so much hiking and um, there's Bass Lake, which you can go um, like on a 15 minute drive and go fishing. So I really want to honor the land instead of overdeveloping it with a lot of different structures and um, having to, you know, burden it with so many um, utilities and just a large minimized impact with the number of residents who would live here. So is this a place that you plan to eventually live full time or will you always have kind of a home in Ohio and a home in Yosemite? You know, Ethan, I, it just seems that whenever you plan something, the universe has, you know, other <laughs> forks in the roads and other ideas. Yeah. Um, you know, as I've been going through this process for the past several months, I think for now, I'm definitely going to still have a home in Ojai. Um, I'm here just for the weekend because I needed to do some maintenance work here. But I'm pretty much full-time still in Ojai. And I'm trying to develop this community here to see how it can work. Um, eventually, I think maybe as I retire in 10 years, I can see myself... Um, retiring here full time but we'll see I mean I, I love Ojai and there's a lot of challenges right now not necessarily for me but for a lot of my friends who are having to move out because of the exorbitant housing prices um, and so you know paying a mortgage here and then rent there for the property is we'll see how sustainable that is for me but um, I, I don't know. I think maybe I can foresee myself retiring here, but always traveling, you know, to some capacity, even when I'm retired. So staying here for a few months out of the year and maybe traveling, either staying in Ojai for a few months or just traveling in different countries. Um, but that you know it's it's the idea of sharing resources with different people so you have 
a community um, dining area, obviously, with a living space that's shared. But beyond that, it would be like sharing um, an office space or sharing a library or sharing cars and bicycles and, you know, laundry. So that, what is that saying? Many hands make light work, <laughs> something like this. So that you can really minimize your energy and just have a sense of connection with people. Um, that's actually, I think, a big factor for me. Um, our society, with just the crazy speed of, you know, everything in our life, with technology and work and all these other obligations, whether or not it's personal or professional, it's just so hard to just slow down and be simple and connect with people um, in a meaningful way. And I, th I, I think that's what I want to model here in this community. That's why I don't want 20 residents. I just want a few, you know, less is more. I just want a few people that I really deeply connect with um, and share resources with, whether or not it's financial or, or other means. It's a really big component of my vision. And of course, having, um, you know, the earth, us stewarding the proper, the, the land so that we're not overdeveloping it is, is another main component of my mission and vision. Well, it's a beautiful vision and I can't wait to, to follow along as it takes shape. <laughs> Thanks, Ethan. Um, yeah, we'll see. There's a lot of a lot of um, ideas and goals, but we'll see how it shapes out. There's there's definitely some challenges to making it happen. So you have um, an upcoming event in Ojai that you told me about that I'd love to let our listeners know about for anybody who's in the area. So, what is it, and when is it happening? Yeah, so it's on March 17th. Um, my tiny house and my tiny office um, will be on tour. It's a Sunday afternoon from 1 to 3. And it's set in a beautiful private residential property at the east end of Ojai. And it'll be uh, showcasing the outdoor space with kind of the living area with seating and really experiencing how... Um, the outdoor part of tiny house living um, works within within like a set of modules. And I'll also be showing my um, off-grid system with the solar panels and discussing, you know, my, my design uh, idea with the tiny house prototype. So, um, nice. yeah, I'd love to show it to whoever is available in the area to come visit. Is this a free event and do people need to register in advance or is it just kind of an open open house? It's a paid event and you can uh, get the tickets on my website. Um, it's venustinyhouse.com, I think, slash tour. I don't remember exactly the, the link, but I'm sure Ethan will be able to have it in his notes. Um, but yeah, it's a two-hour tour and it's um, for a group and it'll be fairly intimate because there's only so many people I can fit in the tiny house. <laughs> but um, there's also limited parking on the property, which is why I encourage others to, um, 
to register soon because I already have quite a bit, a number of people registered from the previous event that was um, canceled due to rain and thunderstorms. So um, this is a rescheduling from the February 14th event. Well, great. If I was anywhere nearby, I would be there. I would have loved to have you, Ethan. There are so many people who uh, expressed interest in the tiny house world, and it's hard to travel across the country for for all these great events. So one thing that I like to ask all my guests um, is what are two or three like books or resources that have inspired you that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um. As I mentioned before, Dee Williams um, during the workshop when it was still under tumbleweed, but Dee Williams, um, her designs were really inspiring. And also um, to test out a tiny house before I started building, I went to um, near Seattle at the Puget Sound to Brittany's tiny house really sweet. She rented it out. That was really helpful and give, getting a feel of how living in one looks like rather than just conceptualizing it in your head. And I highly recommend that before jumping, you know, to the deep end. Um, and let's see, I was also uh, really inspired by, it wasn't a tiny house on wheels. Um, Kristen, Dirksen did a video of this couple in Northern California, I think it was in Mill Valley, who had a 400 square foot house on a foundation in the woods. And they had built it or her husband had built it. I forgot, I think it was called, um, oh, it's, the name escapes me, but the, the fireplace was a big, um, organizing principle of the whole house it was like the hearth of the house and the conversational piece they didn't have running water they didn't have electricity they did everything on candles and just burning wood so it was just amazing how they they were able to just live incredibly simply and it was all about the hearth of the fire and that really just inspired me how to conceive of a design that was based on that. So that's why my fireplace and my tiny house became so central um, because it's, it's really about the, you know, the, the ambiance and the mood, not necessarily just the practical means of heating the space, but the, the kind of um, feel that it has within the space. Are there any architects or designers who, you are kind of most inspired by your favorites? Um, I think David Latimer had a similar aesthetic uh, kind of uh, inspiration from uh, Scandinavian and Japanese design definitely are some of my um, the aesthetics that I draw from the utilitarian means of the way that they make things function so well. And the quality of the spaces by using very light woods to reflect light instead of dark woods that absorb light and the very um, efficient means of organizing the space. Um, the architect that I really admire, he's been 
passed away quite a bit now. His name is Louis Kahn. Um, he did the Salk Institute in San Diego. Very clean, very, he's not a residential architect per se, but very strong um, conceptual principles about light and um, the statement of the spirit in architecture and really conveying a spirit in, in built structures as opposed to approaching it as a, as a kind of a two-dimensional um, facade. It's not really about the exterior or the facade. It's more about what the space is trying to express, um, you know, from, from the hearth, let's say, the concept behind it. And everything comes forth through through that. That's that's great. I can't wait to look at some Louis Kahn architecture. <laughs> Vina Listato, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you, Ethan. It's been a pleasure. You can find the show notes, including links to the resources that Vina mentioned and photos of Vina's tiny houses at thetinyhouse.net slash 049. The Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast is sponsored this week by the Tiny House Design Build Certificate at Yestermorrow in Waitsfield, Vermont. The Tiny House Design Build Certificate is for everyone from professionals entering the tiny house market to DIYers who want to design and build their own home. This is the most comprehensive tiny house course available. The curriculum covers all the must-knows for the tiny house design build and offers students hands-on experience designing, drafting, and building a tiny house on wheels for a real client. To learn more, visit yestermorrow.org tiny and use the coupon code podcast to waive the $25 application fee. Again, that's yestermorrow, Y-E-S-T-E-R-M-O-R-R-O-W dot org slash tiny and use the coupon code podcast to save $25. Thank you so much to Yestermorrow for sponsoring our show. That's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show in your favorite app so you get the new episode every Friday when it comes out.